and that he rose again from the dead to prove it. You are glorious, and now we want to live for you. Help us, teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, page 818 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And today we are at this section where Jesus is greater than religion. I did have a couple of things I wanted to read, read to you here, if I can uh, find them here. It said, uh, Bernard Petrie, a young minister, frequently boasted in public that all the time he needed to prepare his Sunday morning sermon was the few minutes it took him to walk to the church from the parsonage next door. Soon after, the elders bought him a new parsonage five miles away. (laughs) I don't know what that's trying to say. Oliver Mendel, uh, the noted scientist, made a careful study of people who fell asleep in church. His conclusion was that if all the sleeping congregants were laid end to end, they would be a lot more comfortable. One more, all right, okay. At the church I attend, there is a young woman whose husband is an usher. During last Sunday morning service, she became terribly worried that she might have left a roast cooking in the oven. She wrote a note to her husband and passed it to him by way of another usher. The latter, thinking it was a note for the pastor, handed it to the minister with the morning's offering. The minister was just about to begin his sermon. He shuffled the note in with his sermon manuscript and paid no attention to it until he was well into his oration. Imagine his surprise when halfway through the sermon, his eyes fell on the following words. Please go home and turn off the gas. I I promise I'm going to not turn on the gas, okay? So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll work on that. All right, Hebrews chapter 3, I seem to have lost, I found it, begins, and I want to show this video so it kind of set the stage because we want to see how Jesus is greater than religion. One thing is vital to mention how Jesus and religion are on opposite spectrums. See, one's the work of God, but one's a man-made invention. See, one is the cure, but the other's the infection. See, because religion says do. Jesus says done. Religion says slave. Jesus says son. Religion puts you in bondage, while Jesus sets you free. Religion makes you blind, but Jesus makes you see. And that's why religion and Jesus are two different clans. Religion is man searching for God. Christianity is God searching for man, which is why salvation is freely mine and forgiveness is my own, not based on my merits, but Jesus' obedience alone. Because he took the crown of thorns and the blood dripped down his face. He took what we all deserve. I guess that's why you call it grace. And while being murdered, he yelled, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Because when he was dangling on that cross, he was thinking of you. And he absorbed all your sin and he buried it in the tomb, which is why I'm kneeling at the cross saying, come on, there's room. So for religion, no, I hate it. In fact, I literally resent it. 
Because when Jesus said, it is finished, I believe he meant it. So what is religion? Well, as the uh, rapist, how do you say that? What did he was, he, was he rapping? Was he doing something? You know, whatever he was saying, okay. Uh, it's spelt D-O, do. You see, when you have a lot of religion, then you have a lot of do, do. All right, no more. That's it, okay. But what is Christianity? Christianity is D-O-N-E. It is done. In the first century, there was a group of Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. And so they were tempted to go back to Judaism, back to the rituals of sacrifice and incense and law. And the book of Hebrews was written to encourage them to stay the course, to keep going. It's we saw in chapters 1 and 2 how Jesus is superior to the angels, and he's presenting this case, why they need to stay the course. And today, we see that in our passage, he's actually going for the jugular here by stating that Jesus is superior to Moses. Let's look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest, He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So how is Jesus superior? Jesus is greater than religion. He restores our relationship with God, uh, that relationship that is to be a community of believers in love with God. We're going to see this as we work through this passage. First of all, Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. He starts this passage out. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. The center of this verse is that great phrase, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Jesus is the answer to all of our problems. The the verse begins with the word therefore, and of course you've heard before, whenever you see a therefore, you want to look and see what it's there for. And so it's obviously pointing back to something. And as we've seen in chapter 2, over that section, he spoke of three different benefits of the cross. So he's really saying, therefore, because of the cross, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, by dying, by paying the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins, he says, look to him. In light of what Jesus has accomplished, we look to him. Glance at your problems and gaze at Jesus. 
Now, who is he talking to? He specifically says, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. He's referring to Christians, but he's referring to us as a family. That's what we're supposed to see ourselves as, brothers and sisters, and specifically who share in the heavenly calling. Uh, Heavenly calling partners is another way you could uh, translate this in the Greek. This is somewhat of a technical term for believers who have responded to God's salvation call, but believers connected in community, brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. God never intended us to be just a solo individual Christian. He called us to a family, and that's his part. That's, That's his plan. But he's referring here to true believers. True believers are a part of this great plan. Billy Graham, uh, who just died recently but had an incredible, uh, what, 70 years of preaching the gospel. But over and over and over, if you've listened to him, he would ask the people he was talking to, do you know for sure if you were to die tonight that you'd be in heaven? Do you know for sure that you're a Christian, that you, that you, that you are saved, you are, you are one of these heavenly calling partners? And, and he wants us to know for sure. It's not something we should even want, you know, be in doubt of because he wants us to know we're a part of this family if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He says, for those people, fix your thoughts. Katanaeo is the Greek word there. It uh, means to consider attentively It is of intensive sensory perception. This is a good translation in the NIV. Some just say, consider Jesus, and that's a weak translation. It really is. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Now, notice he doesn't say the answer is religion. Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, get religious. Go through the motions of mindless ritual. That's not at all his plan. It's a relationship that we're seeing in community. Once again, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been community. He created us to have a relationship with him and each other in community. This is God's plan, and it's a good one. Okay. It says here that he is our apostle, our apostle, uh, the chief apostle, you could say, one who is sent by God with authority to speak for God and represent God, but he represents God perfectly, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 3, where it states, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He's not just a little copy. He's the exact representation because Jesus is God. And so we see he is the best apostle, the ultimate spokesman for God. But what did he say? Now, when people in 
I don't know, outside of the church, maybe you're talking to people or, or listening to it from the news or whatever, they usually say stuff like, Jesus was love and he was nice and he was kind and he fed the poor and all those kinds of things. And those are right, right? But he also said a lot of other things that are shocking. In John 14, 6, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's amazing when he says stuff like that. Or John 8, 31 and 32, where he says, you have to follow my teaching if you're going to call yourself a follower of Christ. He talked about the the broad way and the narrow way, that that it's a narrow way and few that find it to eternal life. He talked about hell more than any other person in the New Testament. That's the one that we are saying is the apostle. And we need to recognize this because we don't get to make Jesus how we just want to make him. I'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but no, thank you, I don't want that. C.S. Lewis said this profound statement in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg for Easter, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is the Lord. And we see that he is our high priest. Now, we're going to talk about this and see this much more thoroughly as we go through the book of Hebrews. But what we do see, these two titles, apostle and high priest, identify the two functions that Jesus fulfills. As apostle, he represents God to humanity. And as high priest, he represents humanity to God. He is the ultimate mediator because he is both God and man. He offers the sacrifice for our sins, and the sacrifice was himself on the cross. Whatever you're going through, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Moses brought the law to show us that we can't fulfill it. We can't fix ourselves to show us the solution is not religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 17, it describes the difference between Moses, Moses and Jesus. John 1, 17. He says, For the law was given through Moses... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Now we continue in our passage, and in verses 2 through 4, we see that Jesus is the creator of the universe. So how is he greater than religion? He's the answer to our problems, and now we see he is the creator of the universe. And we see this comparison with Moses more thoroughly. It says, verse 2, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Now here we see that Jesus is compared to Moses, and it says that he is worthy of greater honor. Now notice he's not bashing Moses. He's saying Moses was faithful. Moses was good. He was a part of the plan. He was a part of the house, a servant in the house. But Jesus deserved greater honor because Jesus built the house. Now, the house, we'll see in verse 6, refers to the people of God. We are that house. But why are we called a house? Because we're a family. It's a relationship. This is God's plan that he's presenting. But there's something a little more to it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. uses this imagery as well, but adds something to it. First Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, we'll start with verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it is a spiritual house. We're called as a family, there's the house part, but as a family that brings God in the picture and we're to worship God and offer these spiritual sacrifices that we'll see in the book of Hebrews mentions our praise and giving and those kinds of things. And so, but we see here that We're called a house, but it's a spiritual community. But the spiritual community is a family. Interestingly, when when Jesus came on the scene, John uh, chapter 1, verse 14, it speaks of the Word, which refers to Jesus. It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So when Jesus became a human being, it says he became flesh and he dwelt among us. That word, skenao, literally means tabernacle. So it's bringing in the thought of a tabernacle, which was the place where God resided. It represented God's presence. So it's not just that he dwelt with us. He dwelt with us in such a way that we're a family, but we're also a spiritual family. He brought, he's tying in family as well as spiritual things. You see, Christianity our relationship with God was never intended to be compartmentalized. So often, that's how it works. We say, okay, I have my little religious part. I go to church every now and then or whatever, okay? And I go to work. That's my other part. And then I have my family over here. And then I, of course, play golf, okay? (laughs) Okay, so we, we got all these compartments that we live in. And what we're supposed to see is that it's all a 
part of living for God. It's 24-7 living in the presence of God, fixing our thoughts on Jesus. So we don't live in here for a little while, here for a little here for a while. Our family is a part of God. Even golfing. God does want his people to enjoy the life that he's given us, but we're always on call, so to speak. We're always ready to share Christ, and, and, and we can't help but even talk about God because we're always fixing our thoughts on Jesus Christ. We can't help it because he's so wonderful. I mean, when you think about this, he's, have you ever just thought about Jesus for a while? I mean, I can't think enough about him. He's so awesome. And that's why he's encouraging us. But together we do this. We think about Christ. We fix our thoughts on Jesus together. And uh, as this spiritual family, uh, life in Christ is 24-7 where we see our families as a part of a bigger family. And we're a part of this bigger family, but we even see this family as a part of a bigger family, which is why we pray for a different church every Sunday morning in this community. And we pray for the churches throughout the world because we're a part of a bigger family as well. So whether you are single or married, you have kids or you don't have kids, you're old, you're young, you're black, you're white, you're poor, you're rich, we are all family if you know Christ. If you've begun the journey, if you are truly born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so, but that's where when you're born again, when you repent of your sins and you place your faith in Jesus Christ, that's when you're born again and you become a part of of the family, not by works, not by religion, but by Jesus Christ and what he did for you. So Jesus, he built this house. This is his idea, okay? Look around. It's a good idea. You guys are wonderful, aren't you? Okay? You know, this this is God's idea. Jesus built the house. Now, I want to say something else, too, here. Jesus is God. We see this as well from our passage because it says here, verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness that what would be spoken of God in the future. But look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. If Jesus built the house and God is the builder of anything, then everything, then Jesus is God. Warren Wiersbe brings this out. He says the word house is used six times in these verses, which means it's important. It refers to the people of God, not to a material building. Moses ministered to Israel, the people of God, under the old covenant. The contrast between Moses and Christ is clear. Moses was a servant in the house, while Jesus Christ is a son over the house. Moses was a member of the household, but Jesus built the house. By the way, the truth in these verses is a powerful argument for the deity of Jesus Christ. If God built all things and Jesus Christ built God's house, then Jesus Christ must be God. That's good logic. Now, look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We see some more good logic that brings out the same thought. John 1, 
1 through 3. The beginning of the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is so different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's far more uh, theological. Look at what it states. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, we already determined from verse 14 that the Word dwelt became flesh and dwelt among us means the word is referring to Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, but Jesus also was God. See that? Somehow he's with God, and somehow he's, he is God. The doctrine of the Trinity is the only thing that explains this best. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus made everything... And here in our passage here in Hebrews, it says God made everything. Therefore, Jesus is God. That's what we're seeing. And so clearly worthy of worship. Jesus is the answer to our problems. Jesus is the creator of the universe. And Jesus is the ultimate plan. Look at verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Jesus is the ultimate plan. By the way, notice it's all about Jesus, right? That's the focus. He gets all the glory. We don't get any. And that's okay. When we focus on ourselves, that's when we usually mess up. That's when we trip. That's when we fall. That's when we're not happy, when we're trying to focus on our own happiness, right? The world that is just running after happiness is unhappy. But when we focus on Jesus, I'll tell you what, no matter what you're going through, you can't help but experience the joy inside because he is so Amazing, okay? Well, Moses, though, once again, it starts out with Moses. Moses brought a temporary plan. He's being commended. He's a faithful servant in God's house. He bore witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. He actually predicted the Messiah, God's ultimate plan. But Moses' plan was only temporary. Moses' covenant, the Mosaic covenant, Berith is the Hebrew word for covenant, was temporary. We know this from Galatians chapter 3. Look at Galatians 3, verse 17. And this is important for us to recognize. All of those laws, rules, regulations, and so forth that we see in the old covenant was for a time, but it was temporary. Look at what it says in verse 17. What I mean is this, the law, that's the covenant Moses brought, introduced 430 years later, later than Abraham's covenant, he's comparing this to Abraham's covenant, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Abraham's covenant was a promise that through faith were counted righteous. That's still in place. We still see that as a part of the new covenant. So he's saying here the law doesn't get rid of the covenant with Abraham. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. 
Well, why then was the law given at all? Have you ever asked that question? Here's the answer, okay? It was added because of transgressions. Because of our sin, God in his overall plan needed to have this as a part of the plan, but it says until, and you should underline that word until, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. You see, it was there in place until Jesus came, meaning it's no longer a part of the plan. He says it again, verse 24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. We don't need that law anymore. And so it was a temporary necessity for God's overall plan, but but it was only temporary. Moses actually stated this. In chapter Deuteronomy 31 and 32, he tells the Israelites, you're going to break the covenant because it's not good enough to last. You're going to break it, and therefore there's going to be a need for a new covenant. Jeremiah specifically said a new covenant is coming because they broke the old covenant. And so we have this need. The new covenant is what Jesus brought, okay, Jesus brought. So Moses brought a temporary plan, but as the Son of God, Jesus is the permanent plan. Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house. He is the plan, okay? The plan is, okay, let's go over the plan a little bit here. So we step back. The whole Bible starts out with God making a covenant saying, I'm creating this entire world just for you, Adam and Eve. I want you and your children to dwell in this wonderful garden, this perfect place where I will also dwell and we will have this wonderful community together. That's always been God's plan, to have a relationship with his people. And in a wonderful community setting. But Adam and Eve, they chose to sin. And when they sinned, they wrecked everything. Brought a curse on the world. You want to know why the world is messed up? You want to know why bad things happen to good people? It's because the world has a curse on it. Because of sin. Sin has wrecked the world. But God has always had a plan to rescue us from the sin. We see this plan beginning with Abraham. He gives this promise. I'm going to count your faith as righteousness. Because we all have to be perfect. Anyone here perfect? So we can't come with our own righteousness. So God, then we see even under the covenant with, with Moses, that God allows a substitute. That was the whole purpose of the sacrificial system. To show us that God allows a substitute, someone else to die in our place. But of course those animals, because they were not volunteering (laughs) their death, that really didn't count. But it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus. Jesus came, died on the cross to pay the penalty we were supposed to pay for our sins. And God allowed that substitute. He allowed his son to die in our place that whoever puts their trust in him and in him alone for their salvation will be saved from all of their sin. Now, 
And then he left, poured out his spirit on his people, said, go and share this good news to everybody until I come back. And someday he's coming back. He's going to wipe out all evil, and we all get to dwell together with him forever in community. Okay. This is a good plan, okay? And, and you don't want to come, come up with your own plan. You can't improve on this plan because it's Jesus. Now, some, tragically, have gone back to the old way, the temporary way. They focus on the law and on ritual. They even call their pastors priests, like in the Old Testament. That's not God's plan. Jesus is the plan for us to become the family of God. Now, our part is faith, real faith, not just intellectual assent to a list of facts, but real faith, trust in Jesus and in him alone for our salvation. Our part is faith. He says in verse 6, but Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. We hold firmly to our confidence, our confidence in him. We're holding firmly to this truth. We believe our hope is in Christ, and we believe that he died and he's coming back again someday. First coming, second coming, and by the way, that he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof positive evidence that this plan is the right plan. No other plan has this kind of evidence. We are, every single born-again believer, part of his, his house. So, welcome home. And if you're an orphan, he is in the adoption business. He will adopt you if you repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus Christ, outwardly expressing that faith in baptism. Now, some people think this verse means we're on probation, which it does not. So I want to read just a little note in my study Bible that I think explains this very well. He says, The original readers had publicly confessed faith in Jesus, so the author can address them as holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. But the evidence that they are genuinely part of God's household is their enduring faith. This does not describe what will be true if they hold firm. It tells what is already true of them, we are his house, and maintaining their hope demonstrates this relationship. It does not make it true. It provides evidence of what is the case. On the other hand, the exhortations that follow in the rest of the book of Hebrews, the rest of the exhortations that follow warn against a faith that gives up when tested. So there's a real faith and a pseudo-faith, a false faith. Have you truly trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? And so... The big question is, are you a part of the family? Are you truly a born-again believer? Do you know for sure that if you were to die tonight that you would be in heaven? How do I become a child of God? It's not through religion. It is not through being good enough. 
It's through Jesus and him alone. Let's pray.